This is the Cherryleaf Podcast. Excellent. Shall we kick off? Yeah, sure. That's good. By tradition, I don't know why it started, but it, it just is the way that we've done these things, is we've uh, asked our guests to introduce themselves, say who they are and who they work for or what they do. So should we start with that? Hello, my name is Toby Chapman Dorr. I'm the Managing Director of Strand Writing Design, and we specialise in telling and selling the business benefits of enterprise software. And that's what we do. We've known each other for a while now, and you've run events around customer advocacy at the Dorchester Hotel and elsewhere, where you've had different speakers and customers talking about the importance of customer advocacy and case studies. And I tend to, maybe incorrectly, view the company as an organisation that helps organisations write those case study stories in a way that's compelling and interesting to prospective customers. Have I got a fair assessment of what you do? Spot on, spot on. Ah, We articulate what people want to say for them. And in particular, as well as helping people write their product brochures and solution brochures and so on, we very much focus on enabling their customers to say in their own words what they think the benefits of the software and services are. Because that's, in our view, an extremely valuable thing to have. It's right back to the 1960s. I'm Mandy, fly me. It's I chose this airline because it's the best. And that customer endorsement is front and centre of what we do. And you do it in lots of different languages as well, if I remember correctly. We do, we do. But what we do also find is that the common language of marketing is English. So while we might interview people in Portuguese or Spanish or Chinese or whichever it happens to be, the first version is always in English because that's the lingua franca of the universe, like it or lump it. And then subsequently we might retranslate it back to the local language. But we cover the globe for that reason. And we find that's an effective way of working because we can listen to the customer in their authentic voice mm. and then make it available to a much larger global audience. And is that all industry sectors or primarily IT? Oh, it's exclusively enterprise IT. So our common refrain is no cars, no Mars bars, no bras, <laughs> just enterprise IT. The enterprise IT industry is almost, not quite, almost unique. There's one other I can think of like this, because if you're in enterprise IT, much as, for example, one database will compete tooth and nail with another database vendor, in practice, IT vendors collaborate because it's no good having an Oracle database that simply doesn't run on Linux because um, the open databases want to be the Linux dominant. Everybody collaborates with everybody else as well as competes with everybody else. So by specializing, it means that we have a a good view of the, what you might call the industry landscape. We understand how the components fit together. And it's an advantage to work with an agency that specializes in IT. So that's pretty much our pitch. We only do enterprise IT. When we talked about it, I suggested that we have you on the podcast Mm. and we were talking about a theme you suggested the theme nobody ever wants to buy software 
<laughs> well, that can be interpreted as, is it about buy? Is it about software? Is it buying software as it wants? But let me ask the, the question that you suggested to kick this off. Why do you claim nobody ever wants to buy software? Tell me more. Well, if you've ever come across the Ocratic Mern from Greek philosophy, you might understand the argument quite quickly. And I'll try to lay it out as simply as I can. Mm. Fundamentally, everybody would prefer to be barbecuing. I mean, it might not be barbecuing. It might be fishing. It mm. might be crochet. It could be playing tennis. It, who knows? But there are lots of things that people might want to be doing other than buying software, other than even going to work. You might be want to, to go and see your mum or muck around with the kids or any number of things. So work is a means to an end and software falls into the same category what people really want from software is the outcome so if they could get that same outcome by pixie dust they'd use pixie dust and better still if it's free so if the challenge is for example integrating your web shop with the back-end customer database if you could do it with free pixie dust you would you absolutely would. Why would you buy software and go through all that awful constant effort of integration and it doesn't work that way and it's not quite what I expected and so on? So you don't really want to buy software. That's purely an instrumental objective to gaining something else. So this is like the, the thing that's covered on marketing courses and the like of no one wants to buy a drill. It's what they want to buy as a whole. Is that the... Exactly. Nobody wants a camera... They don't even want pictures. They want the memories. They want the sharing. And yet the drill and the hole is the same principle. It, it's all of those things. Of course, when you start to unpick it, then if you want the hole, if you want the memory, if you want the result, the route to that result might be through a drill, a camera, or software. And that's fine, but it's important, I think, to understand that. And then when you have that in your head, when you're talking to customers or indeed selling to customers, then it becomes apparent that it's not actually about the feeds and speeds and the functions. It's about the question, will this deliver what I want? Remembering that the ultimate aim is, is to go barbecuing or is to get holes or have the memory. It's that sort of stuff. So I feel quite strongly about that. And when we speak with our clients and customers, that's principally what we focus on. Because if we can draw out the story about achieving an outcome and an objective, then it all sort of falls into place. Because if you can talk about the story about the outcome, then the question naturally arises, oh, that's good, that's clever. How did you do that? Oh, I did that because I bought XYZ piece of software. And suddenly it all makes sense. Whereas if the conversation is about how quickly can the database recall 10 million items, well, maybe, but somebody else is going to make the same claim too. So is this about messaging and positioning the product that somebody is selling? Is it about identifying what it is that they should be selling in the first place and finding out what the customer's are and are not interested in or is it none of those or both of those but in terms of selling because a lot of what we produce is fundamentally sales enablement material 
in terms of selling, it's focusing on what the ultimate objective is rather than the short-term objective. And by that, I mean, it's quite easy for salespeople generally to become focused on a thing that they're selling Mm -hmm. and have I given enough information about this thing for the customer to want to buy it. But in practice, it's generally not about that. If I can swap examples for a second, you'll notice that cars are generally sold on TV now by showing you open roads and or happy families. They're not sold because they have 16 valves and an overhead camshaft because nerds like that, but even the nerds don't really want that. What what the nerds of car buying want is to look smart among their friends. So car advertising has appreciated this for a long time. I think for enterprise software, marketing teams and sales teams fully understand this. It's just that software is very, very complex. And there is a lot of detail to get into. And there are some amazing functional aspects of software. You think, wow, that's incredible what this stuff can do. All the same, it's very important to fix on the objective because objectives are where people's story arcs go. What do you do at work? You have two answers to that. One is the things you do. Hmm. I stare at a screen, I tap on the keyboard, I have phone calls, mm, it's all pretty dull. Or maybe you make people's lives better. And there are lots of ways of doing that, but that's much more inspirational. That's why people go to work. And ultimately, whose lives are they making better? Their own and their families. So the world that we deal with in the world of technical communication is all about the how and task-driven instructional, getting people to solve their problems, shut the book, as it were, close down the help page and and get on with it. Am I right in assuming that what the content you're talking about is the why? Why should I pay attention to this product? Why do I need it? Why have I bought it? Is is it about explaining to customers the why? It is about explaining to customers about the why. That's quite true. And the higher objective of the answer to that question. But I'd also add that, for example, in the technical writing, in in terms of instructional writing, that pretty much applies as well because there is a certain amount of satisfaction of job well done. So when somebody reads a clear manual that helps them achieve the objective they want to achieve, that feeling of satisfaction is extremely important that the person with the role and not a strategic role, not at the board level sort of stuff, but at the role of making something go for the organization, mm-hmm. knowing they've done a good job and that their world has some satisfaction to them is absolutely as important as somebody talking about the greater objectives of their wonderful company. So, I think for all kinds of writing and communication, keeping that kind of what am I doing this for question in mind is worth it. And every step, every paragraph, every sentence, what am I doing this for? Can I move the argument on? Will the person reading or using this be able to achieve their personal objectives? And how does that fit in? I mean, it might sound a bit grand for writing an instruction booklet or some of the marketing stories we do. But in truth, people are on the planet for a limited amount of time. And I often say to customers, when things get a bit tricky, 
you know, I mean, let's not sweat it. There are no patients on the operating table here. Let's do something that makes people feel good and us feel good and move on. With all projects that we do and with the teaching that we do, we, we recommend that people have effectively a, a use case. They identify the purpose of what they're writing for and they, they identify the audience that they're talking to, also, also the scope. Implicit in what you're saying is also the suggestion perhaps that writers should be enabling their reader to celebrate success, celebrate the achievement of having done something, either having completed a task that they were following through or if they're talking about a case study celebrating the fact that they've used a product and it's achieved what they're doing. Is it partly about celebrating success? It is. I think like a lot of people who come from from the English culture, so to speak, and I mean that by British English rather than American English culture, and there's a slight nuance between celebrating and satisfaction and then at the other end of the scale may be something closer to boasting. And I think, though I don't know, I mm. think most people are happier in the area of satisfaction and celebration. And there's a fine line above that, which is somewhere around boasting and look at me. So we're not in the advertising area, mm. which is very often around, wow, this is all fantastic and it's wonderful and come for this experience and your mind will be blown. It's, you know, the truth of the matter is it's not really like that. But people, professional readers, people that we talk with in business, they don't really want to have their socks blown off. What they want is for the thing to work and to work well and to deliver the results they were promised. And so if you can demonstrate that with authentic customer statements I think that has tremendous value, and people recognize that. If it's a genuine user view of how things went, and they went well, that's really valuable. For example, one of my least favorite phrases is, if you lurch into the the implementation was seamless. I mean, really? Hmm. <laughs> I mean, it does happen. I know it does happen. But for most things, they're not seamless. They take effort. They take attention to detail. They take a whole range of things and at the end of that collaborative enterprise you achieved something great now that's a really good story and people sympathize and empathize with that so that's the area i feel is most useful and also it strikes a chord i think it conveys something that's quite hard to convey if you simply go around telling people you're wonderful it's far more powerful if somebody else says, oh, Ellis is wonderful. Hmm. One of the things I was taught in the dim and distant past was something called solution selling. And it talked about the not so much the selling process as the buying process, the thoughts that the customer or prospective customer has over time. So do I have a problem? Has this problem been solved before? What might a potential solution look like? Look at different possible solutions. Look at the pricing and decide and also at the end look for reassurance that what they're doing is a low-risk, sensible solution. Is there a specific place within that customer journey, that buying cycle, where case studies fit? It's connected with all of that, but the highlight point is the reassurance. So 
if somebody else has been there and done it and not had a bloody nose, that's important. And then if somebody else has been there and seen it and done it and it's worked out well, that's important. And to see those range of genuine peer authentication statements is really useful. There's a whole range of those, by the way. There are simple short statements that people can quote on their websites. There are longer written pieces. There are video case studies, people participating in webinars and podcasts and all sorts of things. So it's, it's a whole range of different things. But fundamentally, it's letting other customers' voices be heard. And I would say as well, it's extremely important for enterprise IT vendors to grit the teeth and hold the sides of their chairs and let the customers say both the good and the not so good things because that way they know they're hearing the unfiltered customer and that again is really valuable i came across one it vendor i won't name them they reckon that any of their customers can be a reference Mm -hmm. all of them and that's their condition for knowing that they have a proper customer so if somebody says to them oh could i speak to your customer let's say, Marks and Spencer, Hmm. if they hesitate, that tells them that they've got a problem with that customer. Now, that's kind of interesting. So if you and I were to look at our customer lists and think, okay, somebody wants to get a reference about Strand, uh, who could I refer them to? Hmm. Well, it's it's an interesting question. Have I got any clients where I go, yeah, maybe they shouldn't talk to so-and-so? Wow, that's an interesting signal, isn't it? But this enterprise customer, by definition, says, yep, you can talk to any of our customers and I'll provide you the phone number. Hmm. That, I would say, is quite rare. One of the things you talked about was British sensibilities. And one of the things that I think we, like many other companies, struggle with is asking people and with NDAs and confidentiality and all of that, can we going to clients and saying, could we talk about having a case study? Do you take on that responsibility? How do you address that concern? Well, those are all interesting points, actually. So the NDA thing comes up a lot. And for those people where there is an NDA of whatever kind, then the answer is often just no. Hmm. And so so that's that. But that's not to say, of course, that they wouldn't be a reference. It's just they're saying, for corporate reasons, they won't. So that's okay in terms of customer health. Are they a healthy customer from our point of view? Yes. Can I use them to refer? No, because there's a technical reason. That's one thing. In terms of asking people, my experience generally is ask. I mean, I know it sounds daft, but there's a certain amount of mm, how they feel about it. Hmm. My general experience is that, for example, when I've asked my own clients, would you be a reference? If there's no NDA in the way, hmm. yeah, sure. There's a completely different thing about then going through the process and making sure that they're happy with it and their corporate comms people being happy and da 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 because they're big companies often and they have their own processes. But generally, in terms of asking, ask. I mean, you know, just ask. And if they say no, well, it's like any sales proposition. Our view is the response is no, not now. It's very rarely no never Hmm. so the key thing is to ask and it's a very useful measure of your own confidence in your customer list in doing that in working out which customers you're confident in approaching the final piece of the puzzle i suggest is would i put 
let's just say, for example, Alice Pratt, who's the chief executive of one of my biggest clients, will I put that quote up on my website mm. only for my competitors to think, oh, that's, oh, wow, right, okay, mm. because that's useful info for the competitor. And that's another really interesting test because if I feel that by putting my customer contact details up on screen, so to speak, that the competition could approach them and poach them, mm. well, I'm not that confident about my customer relationship again because I would hope that if somebody phoned some of our biggest customers and say, hey, we do the same as Strand and we're better, cheaper, faster, mm. and so on, how about you work with us? I would hope my customers would say, well, it's very kind of you to ring and do send me your details. And it's up to me to retain the customer. It's not up to them to win it. If I lose clients, mm. that's because I'm not doing something for them that they can get elsewhere. So it's entirely up to me to attract, train, and retain those customers to make sure that I get a good customer relationship. So those are all quite useful tests all the way through both for ourselves mm -hmm. when we're talking to our own customers about having references and so on, and for our clients when we're doing customer references for them because we'll often set up a call and they say, oh, yeah, can you talk to so-and-so, get a case study from them? Oh, by the way, don't talk about so-and-so because it all went wrong. <laughs> well, yeah, I could, but wouldn't it be better to solve that thing first and find out what's happening and how can we improve? So I think lots of plus points about thinking about customer references and case studies generally. In terms of the implications of this, in terms of what you measure, if you're not measuring drills or the size of drills, you're focusing on holes, you're not focusing on features, but the problems they resolve, what are the yardsticks, the measurements that companies should be focusing on if they do take on board this issue or this statement that nobody ever wants to buy software? Well, I think in response to that question, the big question at the moment related to that is how do you sell your software? Mm -hmm. And the big shift, of course, has been from buying enterprise licenses to buying subscriptions. Yes. So in the past, I think there was a pretty direct connection between holes and drills, if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. If you wanted a hole, you needed a drill, and here are the possible drills, and you bought one and you owned it for life, and that was it. And then when an upgrade came along, I'm stretching the analogy a bit, but when the upgrade came along, you bought another one. Hmm. But now, for the large part, that doesn't apply. You kind of hire a drill, you get the hole, and you pay this kind of subscription, and the drill is constantly upgraded in the background. So you don't really have quite that same relationship. And I would argue in what's increasingly being called the new customer economy, that it is far more important to think about the long-term value of the subscription relationship than it is to think about the features and functions of the drill. Take Sage, for example. Go back a few years, Sage was delivered on a disk and it was an on-premises piece of software and you did your accounts and that was kind of it. But the whole business model for Sage has changed and you set up a user account and you get the the features and functionality through a web browser, but you don't buy the software anymore. So what are you buying? Well, you're not. You're subscribing to a service. And a service is a very different relationship from a product. I mean, it's true there is a product, and it's extremely important for that product to be 
cutting edge, deliver lots of functions, have a great experience, all kinds of product-led items. To return to your question, how do you measure what's happening? Well, clearly you measure it by the number of subscriptions you're getting, the reduction in churn, all those sorts of measures for subscriptions, all of which come from the relationship because it's, it's based on service. And service-based relationships are very different. So it's true there are metrics, and the metrics are around subscriptions, but I suspect that the metrics are driven fundamentally about the service relationship, about the service you're delivering. And, for example, I was talking to somebody recently, and they made the point that actually most of their sales don't come from the sales team. Sales teams, in terms of selling product, are Mm -hmm. becoming insignificant. The people that do the selling, they're not even the people that do the renewals activity. They're the service and support people. Because somebody phones up saying, I want to do X. They're looking at their browser because it's delivered through a browser. I want to do X, I can't. And stupid this, stupid that, it's all going wrong. And somebody back at the ranch can say, okay, hold on, well... What you do here is, and they explain because they have really good product knowledge, they understand the product inside out, and they solve the customer's problem. And at that point, there's a sales opportunity. You could upgrade to the pro or the premium version because that would enable you to do these things. This particular vendor I was talking to, they noticed they were getting far more sales through their support team, not through the sales team and not through the renewals team. The support team were selling, and they didn't even know it. I mean, the support teams themselves didn't know it. And interesting, that was partly because they're not targeted on sales or upgrades. They're targeted on customer satisfaction. Hmm. So there's an interesting statement I heard from a company in Switzerland. I've got their name now. I think 70% of all Hewlett-Packard laser printer customers, and I think this would be true for all of the vendors, never actually physically see or touch a printer before they buy it. It's all done on the information that's provided on websites, the customer reviews, the recommendations, or their past experience, like you say, with previous products or the support that's been provided. But it's all about the brand. It's all about the reputation and not actually looking or touching the product before they make the decision to buy it. Yes, that's true. And what's also interesting about that point is that those customer reviews, of course, are very much uncontrolled customer statements. So you can do your NPS scores and say how wonderfully satisfied your customer base is, but you're only getting responses from those people that you surveyed. All of the responses that people will look at by majority, are the unsurveyed population. They're the people that go on to Twitter, Facebook, mm. any other social media, and start saying, this is a great product. Guys, you've got to switch to this. Mm. Or, alternatively, don't buy so-and-so's printers. They suck. What is it they should be then focusing on in terms of content or information? What should they be providing? And secondly, can they do it themselves? Should they be getting experts in? A couple of components there. One is what should they be providing or doing? I think the main thing they should be doing is, as far as possible, opening up the gates. There's room for all kinds of different voices here. There's room for 
the uncontrolled, the Twitter, the Facebook, all the comments that people post entirely independently of the marketing team and the vendor. And it's quite difficult for people who are used to controlling marketing programs and campaigns to let go of that. But in general, I would say encourage customers to promote. But it could be negative, and you just have to bear that in mind. It could be negative, but that's a useful thing to learn. If they're tweeting negative things, well, do something about it. So encourage people to do stuff. And there's a whole range these days, of course, of different ways you might do that, some of which will require professional assistance and some of which, no, go for it amateur style And that's because what we're aiming to achieve is the delivery of the authentic message. So sometimes it's helpful to have an agency like ours, for example, because we have the skills and capacity to do things that maybe it's easier if you outsource. Sitting in front of a blank piece of paper can be quite daunting. And if there are 30 case studies to produce, that's quite a workload. Mm -hmm. So you can turn on and off the tap if you have an agency. But there are other things where I would suggest it's probably less helpful. So I'm a big fan of customer-created mm -hmm. videos. I rarely, if ever, watch like a three-and-a-half-minute corporate video about how marvelously a piece of software has worked out for it. It's just oh, not another person walking through the marbled halls of the office mm. with a voiceover saying, we implemented XYZ software because we wanted to do so-and-so, and there's a bit of twinkly music in the background. Yeah, really? And you can spend an awful lot on that. If you can encourage customers to do what I might describe as quick and dirty videos, do that. Mm. Be because actually, that's what people want to see. They want to hear. They want to, they want to hear somebody saying, yeah, well, actually what happened was mm. we did this and it worked out pretty well. Mm. And maybe the sound quality is not that good, and maybe the video is a bit iffy. But if I think about the videos I do on my phone, hmm. the sound quality is appalling, and the video is hopeless, and it shakes all over the place. But we put that to one side when we watch it because we're emotionally involved. So I think it's important to understand that you can over-professionalize things, and that dilutes the authenticity of the message. And so for some things, it's really, really useful to have professionals involved just in terms of winding the handle producing things when they're needed and so on and so on and in other cases yeah get out of the way mm. let the customer speak and there are ways to do that we can sometimes help with that other times we say yeah go for it just you know phone them up phone them up ask them if they can have a chat with you capture a few words stick them up on your website mm. i've seen at a number of conferences where they've had a camera set up and there's an opportunity for delegates to go up and say how they feel or how the conference is going at this moment in time. And you get a range of different comments in that way. And it does have a very authentic feel, I suppose. So maybe authentic is not the right word, but it's very engaging hearing people that have experienced it or are experiencing it, talking about it rather than, as you say, the, the corporate promotional video about a particular event. I think so. I'm probably five years behind the curve here, but I think increasingly the whole response to social media has changed that, that people expect direct interaction and they don't want mediated interaction. Having said that, by the way, I also think that 
you can be bamboozled by social media and similar things because if somebody's looking at enterprise software, I don't think social media is the convincing case. I think there are a range of different channels to use to reach those audiences. And social media is quite marginal at the business end of enterprise software. Similarly, that doesn't mean it should be ignored. It's just that it might catch their attention. But in the end, people do want to see proper materials put together properly to give them that reassurance you mentioned mm -hmm. earlier that they're dealing with a substantial company that is invested in the product and in the service. So it's a bit of a vague answer. I think there's a whole range of different channels and a whole range of different ways of reaching people. If there were a magic wand and I could say, yeah, absolutely, what you should be doing is this, it'll cost you that much and it'll work. Well, everybody beat a path to my door. Unfortunately, it's a case of who are we trying to reach? What do we think might work? Let's try this. Let's try that. Let's measure what we've done. Is it effective? Let's talk to the people we normally talk to and so on. And you build up a picture and rinse and repeat. Another question I've got, which I'm not sure if it's answerable, or you may be able to answer. And, and that, <laughs> the implications for this, for the world that we at Cherry Leaf deal with in terms of online help, instructional content, onboarding, developer portals, that side, does it have any implications in terms of the way in which technical authors should be writing, creating content? I think for all writing these days, the emphasis on being direct, it's partly a time management thing. Mm -hmm. For example, if I'm looking through instructional pages or FAQs and so on, I don't want yards of blather about how wonderful life is and how excellent the product is. No, give me the answer. Would you mind? Just get to the point. It's partly a time thing, but it's partly this authenticity I'm not a technical author. I don't know the ins and outs of how you prepare people for that. I would say the key thing is to think like the reader. Yes. And if you can think like the reader, you've won so much of the battle. When we write things, I don't know how it is for you, but when we write things, we always complete a, an internal peer review. And that peer review is by somebody that was not involved in the project. Hmm. Because the readers of the material we produce clearly weren't involved in the project and it's so easy as a writer to make assumptions that mm. people will understand what you're talking about and i suspect that's similar for technical writing can you do it in such a manner that it is immediately crystal clear what you're talking about that there is no reason for somebody to think mm, yeah okay what do i have to do here do i read another bit to, exp mm. to find out what that means so getting things immediately clear. And that, that's a talent, and it takes effort. Reviewing is a key part of a project, getting reviews from outside, because, as you say, terminology can be a challenge. The level of expertise, the completeness are important factors in terms of getting the content right and accuracy. A whole manner of different measures that we use to check that the content is what is needed. With all these things, it comes back to the outcome you or I or anybody else on this funny little planet are trying to achieve. And it's back to, we'd all rather be barbecuing. <laughs> and so it's a useful kind of thing. I mean, picking up on your drills and holes, I'm not even sure people want holes, particularly in the wall, come to think of it. 
if you're drilling a hole in the wall, then having paid, if you own your own house, having paid for the wall, you probably don't want holes in the wall. What you want is a way of holding that picture or whatever it is up on the wall. And why do you want the picture on the wall? So you can look at it and go, yeah, I remember that. That was good. What's the ultimate outcome? That's always the thing. What's the ultimate outcome here? And then you, you drill it down and you come down to the basics of the intro and what are the business reasons for this and how did the implementation go for that and so on. But ultimately, what's the outcome? What, what are people trying to achieve? There's a Japanese method in lean manufacturing of the five whys. And you just keep asking why and why. And as you were saying, yeah. I was thinking, well, you have the whole to have a bookshelf. Well, why do you have a bookshelf? You have a bookshelf to hold books. Why do you have books? You have books because you want to read them. Why do you re want to read the books? And then finally, you get to what the whole purpose of that drill and that hole is, that it enables you to easily and quickly to get to the books that you want, to read the, yep. the information that you need to take pleasure from reading. It is that keep asking why. Yes, yeah, absolutely. I think we've probably come to a natural conclusion point on this topic. It was in many ways freestyle in that we just started with the statement and no plan in terms of the questions or responses that were going to be done. Thank you for being able to handle on the fly a whole range of different questions that I put to you. And if people want to contact you and find out more about this as a topic or again, strand, what's the best way of contacting you? The easiest thing is to have a quick look on our website, which is www.strand-uk.com or maybe chase me down on LinkedIn, Toby Chapman Door. Find my details on LinkedIn. And it's Chapman-Door and Door's D-A-W-E? Correct. Right. Excellent. Well, I will say at this point, thank you, Toby. Thank you. Great pleasure talking with you. Thanks.